Today's guest is ethnographer and human rights investigator Vitor da Silva, who is on a lifelong mission for the rights of indigenous people. He works independently to help and defend lives and protect land, whilst also working alongside wonderful charities like Survival International, which is a platform for tribes, nature and all of humanity. Vitor is a field investigator and has spent time with many different indigenous groups. In today's podcast, we dig deeper into his time with the Noki Queen people of the Amazon. We discuss the importance of their rituals and how it has helped them not only resist the violence and racism they receive on a daily basis, but to become an even stronger community, a community that thrives as a collective. We also find out how the sacred plant medicine of ayahuasca can pass down the knowledge of previous generations in a community where there is no written language. Through rituals and altered states, they keep their culture and wisdom alive. Just because our worldview is so different doesn't give us the right to disregard theirs. Just imagine the possibility if we actually listened and learned from these people and how we could make the world a better place. I think there's something so mystical and so magical about the way the Noki Queen and other indigenous groups live. I'm very thankful for people like Vitor who can create awareness and protect these amazing people, their way of living and their far deeper understanding of this planet, something that we can learn so much from now more than ever. And when we can finally have some human interaction again, I'll be holding some sound meditation fundraisers for Survival International. So I will keep you all posted and please do come and join. This is something that can happen in sound meditation and whatever. You know, we only get proved in maths, logic, baking, and whiskey. Uh, I'm very, very hopeful about the future. The big question for me is just how are we going to get there? I would just take myself out of this world of reality and architect my life from possibility. What might that possibility be? This is the Elitia podcast with Elizabeth Broderick. So what first led you to working with Indigenous people? Right, so... That's a very long story, and I think that kind of deserves a podcast of its own. <laughs> but essentially, um, it is the culmination of a long journey of personal growth, which allowed me to see, thing, to see things of what they were. Uh, for example, to see the, the society in which I grew up in, uh, that it was just one model of reality, and that there were... Uh, thousands of other ways of organizing human societies and uh, ways that are much benign and healthier to our existence here on, on Earth because I used to really be a very different person. I, I, I wasn't always this person who is more connected to spirituality and uh, the passion for culture. I was very more, very much... Um, much more rational. Uh, you know, I, I joined the military as soon as I was, uh, as soon as I turned 18, and then went on to become uh, a criminal investigator in, in the UK. <clears throat> but, you know, because I had already studied anthropology at university and had the chance to conduct field work with uh, the Maasai people in Kenya, for example, uh, that seed. Uh, carried along with me, regardless of how successful I was and how much money I was earning with the police. So while I was working uh, with the, within the criminal 
in, uh, criminal justice system in England? Have you been trained already as a criminal investigation investigator for three intense years? I thought about you know using these skills to something greater than me, uh, you know, to something greater than quote unquote maintain the Queen's peace. You know, there's much more outside of what we see to be the, the world. You know, mainstream society, modern society. So essentially. For me, that was the moment when my, ha my head was finally calibrated with my heart and my passion. So I decided to abandon this promising career uh, in the criminal justice system to go on and fulfill a greater mission. It's so amazing. It's so interesting. I, I believe that we have so much to learn from indigenous people. And today I do really want to focus and talk about the importance of ritual from your studies and finding of experiencing living with them. But before we move on to that, I just want to know, has their culture and their spiritual practices changed you as a person in the way that you approach life and maybe your That's attitudes a, towards life as well? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. That's a very good question. Um, I would say absolutely in, in many many ways. Uh, I I don't think I would I would be the same person I am I am today uh, had I not decided to follow my intuition uh, and work with these peoples. I don't I don't want to over romanticize the communities that I lived with, but to a larger extent, their way of life was presented to me as some sort of antidote to chaos that I saw and lived uh, as part of modern society. So I can safely say that, you know, I'm a, I feel much wiser and much of a tolerant person than I would ever be had I stayed within the parameters of what my own society expected of me. So maybe, you know, the only downside is, uh, having no money in my bank account as opposed to when I was working, uh, you know, in the mainstream, but I'm content nonetheless, you know, and I really feel fulfilled and humble for the opportunity to support the fight of indigenous peoples. So how was it when you first got there? How did you integrate into the community? When I was reading uh, your paper, mm -hmm. I it really made me laugh that when you first got there, you kept asking people, how long this whatever you were doing was going to take and they kept looking at you like what is what is this guy talking about why is he asking such irrelevant questions i think that the way they live is my kind of way of living i'm so bad at keeping time but how did you find your first integration it's such a contrast to how you were living previously yeah i mean so as i said i was in the himalayas first and then landed in london and then from london just straight to the Amazon. So it was a, you know, a changing, the worlds were changing for me very, very fast. And so after being in such a, a prestigious university and just like, you know, being in that achieving mode of just getting things done and time and planning, uh, I, I confess that I arrived there, although I, ha I, I had the anthropological training, you know, it was still some part of me that it was like trying to grasp the idea of time and planning and whatever. So, um, so yeah. So it was, it was it's always a process of integ integration. 
when you work with indigenous peoples. And that's why uh, these, these sort of uh, research uh, asks for a long-term approach because you can't just parachute there and extract whatever, whatever information is convenient for you and just leave because truth is you will never get what the people want to, you know, what the reality is. You, people will just tell you what they think you want to hear because they don't, you haven't had the, you haven't taken the time to actually be inserted into the community. So yeah, there, there is always a process of integration and what is important uh, is to keep an open mind. And uh, that's where my anthropological foundations came handy, you know. So uh, obviously also my experiences working with other communities because uh, a, lot of, a lot of people, I keep saying this, uh, a lot of people, however good intentions they may have, uh, will almost always end up doing more harm than good because we are talking about communities who have been violently persecuted enslaved and marginalized for several generations but yes you know there's a flow state within the community and what competed uh to me as a researcher was really uh to have a different approach than what my ancestors did uh but and actually just sitting down and listen and follow um the dynamic of the community and I guess taking time to actually understand and connect with them and try and reach that flow state with them to gain a deeper understanding. Mm-hmm. Absolutely, absolutely. So going on to, moving on to rituals. From your work that I've read, you talk about how important rituals are to them and how actually it's helped them survive through all the trauma that they've been through. So how does their day actually revolve around ritual? Going from everything from their everyday task to their spiritual practices. Mm-hmm. And I get I got the sense from what I've read of your work that it's never really about the individual, it's always about the collective. Absolutely. And um that is not only the case with the Noko Queen. Uh, the pattern I keep saying now here with my work I'm doing in India and other places I've worked with is that, um, yeah, you, you're absolutely right in terms of the collective. And this, this which I've discovered about ritual, I have a feeling that this applies across the world. And so, yeah, like everything uh, that happens routinely is in a way a ritual. Like we, uh, in our own homes, brushing our teeth every morning, that is uh, an habitual ritual. So... However, as you said, rituals among indigenous communities revolve around the collective and almost never the individual. And that's one of the main differences between, you know, quote-unquote traditional societies and our modern society. And um, that is the wider, the wider realization that the individual without the community cannot survive. Uh, and an example of how the day revolves around some sort of ritualistic foundation uh, is the very own social cultural expectations that both men and women have within the community. For example, the men 
are responsible for hunting, while the women uh, among the Nukukwing are responsible mainly for preparing the food, uh, the game that the men bring after hunting. So these tasks of subsistence are done routinely and collectively. And the spirit of sharing, caring, and also reciprocity is kind of weaved through these experiences and reaffirmed later on during their sacred rituals where both men and women come together in a moment of uh, collective effervescence. So no spiritual practice uh, going back to, to the rituals beyond their own subsistence to talk about the, the spiritual side of things. Uh, I, I, you know, apart from the shaman who would conduct healings throughout the day whenever a member of the community was ill, uh, I never saw anybody just sitting around by him or herself, uh, quote-unquote, doing spiritual things, you know. The, no spiritual practice ever happened individually. Um, so, and yeah, and there was also a very clear distinction between the profane and uh, the sacred and the profane. And no individual would therefore dare to try and reach the divine by uh, him or herself because they understand that is really the power of the collective that catapults them into, into that state of divinity. So what is actually then the, the role of the shaman in the community? And I guess I'm quite interested to know about their collective and how it works with hierarchy. Because obviously, uh, when I think about, you know, businesses in London, I know it's a completely polar end of the opposite end of the spectrum, where there's such enforced hierarchy. And I imagine the elders and the shaman is very respected in the community. But how does it work in a general sense of hierarchy? So these communities tend to be, you know, in comparison to our modern society, they tend to be much more egalitarian. Uh, you know, they, they, their social ex expectations are much more dependent on the spirit of reciprocity. So, you know, the shaman, for example, he, you know, going back to the shaman, he plays a fundamental role uh, in the continuation of the community as a people, you know. The shaman uh, could be seen as some sort of cultural engineer that in every generation with the pro problems that confront that particular community, it is through the shaman uh, who acts as a mediator between the physical and the spiritual world of their ancestors that is, in a way, takes the stage uh, of, you know, and that is why for example, the shaman, uh, you know, who is very rarely the leader of the village, there's always normally a leader and a shaman. And the shaman is, is you know, is that kind of guy who will, will live at the fringes of that particular society, you know, isolated in his own world until his expertise is required. Is, you know, in our own modern society, the people who we throw into mental health facilities, these people in the Amazon rainforest are seen as, uh, as a potential shaman. They are embraced instead of discarded and dismissed as uh, quote-unquote crazy. And, um, you know, the shaman is, 
you know, almost always the most respected members of the community, even beyond um, the village leader, because, you know, everywhere I've been, it wasn't uncommon to see uh, the authority of the shaman superseding that of the of the village leader. So there's no written language, if I understand. So knowledge and wisdom is passed down through the collective and through generations, through rituals. So are these, is this wisdom passed down when they're experiencing altered states of consciousness as a collective? So throughout history, indigenous people in Brazil, they, and many indigenous people all over the world, they don't, they didn't have uh, a written language. So a lot of the knowledge was mainly passed orally through the guidance of the community. So children uh, are in a way almost, you know, unconsciously is not that the rules are dictated by the elders, but they are in a way expected to follow the elders uh, in their daily tasks. And through such an holistic and experiential way of learning, um, it is through that that the younger generations kind of grow up prepared to deal with the challenges that confront that particular community, uh, which is, a, of course, a very different way of bringing up ch children uh, in comparison to modern society, uh, which, you know, when the, when, when the grown-ups go into, do, into parties or rituals or, um, or work, or to do their daily work, which then becomes their own subsistence. Uh, the kids are just dropped and dumped into some into school, uh, you know. Which you know, to talk about education in modern society, it just reminds me of this comedian Duncan Trussell, who, <laughs> very very, uh, in a very funny manner, he says that uh, kind of schools or high schools are no different than concentration camps for teenagers. Uh, and I feel like, I think I got that one right because people there in the villages, they were very much open and free and carrying machetes. And there was no such thing as trying to, to protect the children. And they were so resilient. Um, so, you know, the, um, so yeah, they follow the elders. They, 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 they leave every moment. The, the, the community is always together. And of course, the altered, altered, uh, alt the altered states of consciousness do have uh, an enormous role to play in terms of their own continuation as a people. You know, it is here through those rituals that the community, uh, guided by the shaman, is able to enter uh, what I call the liminal space of the invisible world, where they receive the teachings and healings. Uh, from their ancestors that they require uh, to continue surviving. And going uh, back to altered states of consciousness, I have a lot to thank to Indigenous culture and working with sound in their healing. From your experiences of working with them, how have they used sounds in their spiritual practices? Have you been with them when they've used sound to take them to a state of oneness? Yeah, I mean, among the Nokukwing, and I would say among maybe all indigenous groups in Brazil and a lot all over the world, sound, you know, the vibration through sound plays a fundamental role 
in in them establishing some sort of trance state, which helps them, um, you know, shift gears or tap into a different uh, frequency range where they have access to uh, different information. So I think I will just tell you a story. You know, when I was down there in the Amazon, uh, living with the Noku Queen people. Uh, one of the main aspects that I wanted to understand about their rituals was how the community enters into such spaces of oneness. Uh, how do they get there? So one night uh, during their most important ceremony, the, the, the ayahuasca ritual, um, I was laid down there in my hammock uh, under the Kopishawa, which uh, is also known as the Maloka. It's an open circular structure where Amazonian communities usually con conduct their rituals. So, so I was there bouncing in my hammock uh, while the community conducted their chants. Uh, so so if, if you imagine, I'm in the hammock on, this, on the verge of that circular structure. So to my left side is the dark forest with its intense and rhythmic hum. And to my right is the community dancing in a circle with their voices now calibrated into one. So, so I, I was basically in the middle of that symphony. Uh, and by then, you know, bear in mind that I had already drunk two or three cups of the very unsavory brew, and I was peaking uh, in terms of my own experience, my own dissolution of, of the ego. I wasn't myself anymore. And then, then a voice came to me, and while I was in the middle of that orchestra, and explained that the community was not singing to themselves for their own pleasure, uh, for their own enjoyment, but they were actually singing to the forest, and that you know by entertaining the forest and pleasing the spirits around them through sound. Uh, was the method that they crafted through centuries, uh, you know, to be able to turn, tune in into the frequency of their roots, like a trance-inducing mechanism that allowed them to connect to their ancestors and, you know, who had walked the same land as they have and have sung the same songs. is some sort of uh, collective conscience where, you know, their ancestors have crafted these songs and the, in these particular rituals and times of the day, you know, that's what makes a ritual is a set of, of rules and forms. And so the community just follows that. And is, it is as if in these states, you kind of extract information from the universe, but you also leave your own wisdom there. And it's like collective conscious that, you know, all of us maybe when we ourselves, whatever we may be, enter that state of, that outer state of consciousness, we may have access to that wisdom. That's why it's not a surprise when uh, uh, a lot of people uh, enter, you know, through whatever medicine or ritual have an experience like that. And they, 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 they share the same message, which is of oneness. So, you know, at one point during that experience, I, would, I was with my eyes, now open, looking at the ceiling of that amazing structure, and a face with a you know with a feathered headdress just pops in on my field of vision, and it was like, you know, I wasn't 
scared was like, you know, normally if I was in my normal state of consciousness, consciousness, I'll probably freak out. <laughs> but there was, you know, just love emanating from all things. And um, Wash, Wash Mir, which is this, uh, the only youth who spoke Portuguese, he was the, the son of the leader. He came to me and asked, and asked me, uh, Ma'u was the name they gave me there in the village. He said, Ma'u, are you, are you in the force yet? And, you know, which I, in that state of consciousness, interpreted as if he was, if he was asking me if I was in the same frequency as him. And, uh, you know, with great difficulty, I said, you know, yes, in some, you know, in a blur speech and ask him, you know, since he asked me this question and approached him, I asked him, you know, how, you know, how was the medicine of ayahuasca making him and the community feel? And at that moment, I was hoping to hear, you know, a deep spiritual explanation of things. And, and he just answered very simply, you know, uh, the medicine makes our voices very good. You know, our songs get very strong and that makes us feel very, very good. You know, it was then that I realized that, you know, Washme was not telling me about the end feeling or mm-hmm. apotheosis of the experience. Because, you know, having been in that realm, I realized that you cannot possibly articulate that experience. But rather, he was trying to, to explain me the means to reach that state of exuberance. And I understood that, you know, by syncing their voices together, they had increased the accumulated group energy, which in turn had produced a state that Durkheim, this, the founder, the father of sociology, describes as collective effervescence, uh, which in a way could explain the feeling of communal uplifting that had both permeated the ritual itself, but also exceeded into their daily life. And I feel like you, as a sound healer, when, when you conduct your ceremonies, that, that sense of oneness is, you know, not only permeates the very ritual, that state of relaxation that people go to, but also when they leave, uh, when they leave the studio and go home, I think that also extends to their own life as well. So again, sound, uh, you know, not only through voice, but also drumming and uh, whatever, it plays a very a very key role in many communities around the world. Yes, definitely. Don't you think my classes are quite as powerful as your experiences? <laughs> but I try to. Um, it's such a magical and mystical way of living, and it's so different to anything that I can experience from living in London, which makes me find it even more painful that just because Indigenous people live in a different way, we feel that we have this position of superiority and that they should they live backwards and they should be living how we are living and therefore should be wiped out. You know, they face such abuse, such racism, such segregation, violence. Well, sorry, they want segregation from us, but violence and it, it's awful. And from all the research that I've read of yours, it's really shown how their rituals have helped them get through this devastation. Can you explain a bit yeah. how that's happened? <clears throat> yeah, I mean, that is uh, basically at the center of my thesis. That was me uh, in London 
in the center, living in the center of London, trying to figure it out how, you know, because it also coincided with the time that uh, President Bolsonaro got into power to Brazil and he started to, um, you know, change, um, just trying to, to enact policies that compromise all the rights of indigenous people in Brazil, which are in their constitution of 1988 and trying to kind of regress, bring a re regressive measures to that. And I was trying to figure it out how, you know, maybe because this is like a, a new colonial force kind of awakening back again, you know, it led me to think, you know, how have they survived these 500 years of uh, colonization? Uh, because maybe if you figure that out, if you, maybe we'll, we will better understand how they can, now survive uh, against this new colonial force. So, so the Nacuquim people, you know, like the other indigenous groups in Brazil, they share this 500-year history of, like you said, violent persecution. And you know, we need to to remind ourselves that we are talking about a colonial enterprise that really sought to erase them from the face of the earth. You know, an ethos that only spared the, their lives uh, of some indigenous people whenever it was convenient for them as colonizers to enslave them uh, in the exploitation of natural resources, um, as it happened during the, for example, the rubber boom in the late 1800s. So, you know, poetic in its malevolence, Brazil were bestowed with the task of destroying their own physical and spiritual ecosystem uh, under this dehumanizing scheme that, that sought to feed the market-based economy of a distant land, which is uh, nothing more, nothing less than what is happening today with, you know, destroying the forest to create uh, monoculture and planting soybeans so you can export and ensure the continuation uh, of your economy. So while their bodies of uh, indigenous people were chained to an oppressive regime uh, and their slavery schemes, their souls were in a way handed to the religious missionaries who uh, were given the task to quote-unquote tame the savage and save them from the perceived darkness that they thought was embedded in their myths and rituals. Like you said, that higher that position of superiority that we know best and anything that falls outside uh, of the way we do things is backward and and uh, you know is primitive so of course their culture and way of life was deeply affected uh, and what i found in my research in brazil was that if it wasn't for the community cohesion uh, brought by the sacred rituals uh, that were conducted away from the eyes of the colonizers, you know, the, the shaman will uh, kind of retreat into the forest with some men and uh, they would conduct these rituals. And if it wasn't for that, you know, to kind of keep the amber of their essence, essence alive, maybe the indigenous people that inhabited the land that had become reconfigured today as Brazil, they would have perished, perished for sure. Also, it's just a bit mad when you think about the fact how many people now in the West 
when they're stressed or traumatized or from overworking or anything are now flying to South America to take ayahuasca and to feel this connection. And there's so many of these rituals that could really actually save this planet and we need to wake up to that. And when the indigenous people have experienced these dark times, how did you find their approach to it when you've spoken to them? You know, are they angry or are they at peace with it and they see it as, you know, maybe part of their spiritual practice and enlightenment to get through it? I think really it really depends on on the timing you ask that question to them. Uh, because when I was there in the beginning uh, and I would probe them with some questions, of course, they're more hesitant than they, you know, it takes time for them to open to you. And uh, but as the weeks went by and the community became more and more comfortable with the presence of a gringo, you know, of an outsider, they were much more open to share uh, their vulnerability with me. Uh, and I think also in a way, my participation in, in, in the very in the rituals uh, themselves also in a way dissolved the boundaries between myself and the community. And, uh, you know, it really goes on to show the power of ritual. But, um, of course, they get angry. You know, it is the survival of their children and the continuation of their people that is at stake. So, but yes, of course, they do resort to their medicines and spiritual journeys to find mechanisms of coping with the dark forces of neocolonialism. And now that you talk about, you know, you know, this this phenomena of people from modern society traveling to the Amazon to do ayahuasca. You know, there's a lot of people who have uh, uh, different ideas about this, this trend. And I feel like, you know, it is no coincidence that these medicines have traveled all the way from the, the heart of the Amazon to the streets of London. You know, nowadays you can have ayahuasca in London and you know, you could, you, of course, I would say that, you know, have the presence of a shaman is absolutely necessary. And I mean, a shaman, a guardian of their own medicines. But, you know, in a way, it's like as if the, you know, the spirit of ayahuasca, the spirit of the forest, the essence of the earth, kind of trying to find its ways through the world so it really can heal, uh, you know, those who are actually, um, fucking up you know so so i think it's a it's a positive thing if done under the right set and setting and under the the guidance of a, of an indigenous shaman for sure when we first spoke you told me a story about how the ayahuasca ritual had really helped them through so many stages but specifically when motorways had been built very near to their land and it had complete devastation and just destruction to some of their rituals so what is life like for them now so and when how the, did the medicine help them through that when they were built mm -hmm. yeah so when the interstate road that uh, today pierces through their indigenous territory was built you know it decimated all the animals because the pollution um, you know, from the increased circulation of vehicles, also, you know, beyond the pollution that kind of, and the noise that made the animals to go away, 
deeper into the forest was also, you know, the, the road also opened doors for, you know, non-Indigenous outsiders like illegal loggers, miners, and even uh, hunters who go there. And, and, and for that reason, um, the animals that they depend for their survival almost disappeared completely. And of course, these affected the daily rituals of both men and women uh, who today are unable to fulfill uh, the social cultural expectations to the collective, as I described before. So, for example, men, you know, can no longer rely on the hunting journeys that in the past served to glue them together. And it is, you know, crazy, magnificent journeys through the forest where they have to go through the struggle of, tar of targeting this animal, carrying it back to the community. All of that is gone, um, which, of course, as a consequence, you know, the animals having, having been gone also affected the woman who no longer spend the days preparing uh, in, uh, in a group, uh, preparing the, the game that the, the men have brought. So the, the daily rituals were deeply affected. Uh, and this, of course, has wider repercussions in their spiritual life as well. Uh, and so today, uh, the Noku Queen are left to, in a way, to commodify their own sacred rituals through healing, healing uh, boot camps and, and, and retreats for outsiders, which in a way, you know, it, 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 they really don't feel bad about it. They feel actually that we are in a way ill and therefore we have something to take away from that. And they, they themselves don't necessarily see themselves as the, as the owners of the medicine that is only ours. It's, it's the medicine of the forest is for all of us. Um, but still they have to, they have to open their land sometimes to, 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 you know, to, to have problems because not everyone who goes there have the, 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 the sensitivity to sit down with them and actually respect the culture. And, uh, and women nowadays, they, they spend their days mostly sat down among themselves and creating jewelry out of beadwork and uh, in order to sell to the mainstream society and be, being able to earn money uh, so they can buy food from outside, which is very, very sad. It's so sad. And when, you, when we were talking previously about how uh, lots of the teenagers, when the motorway got put in, actually went out into the local town and started to buy lots of alcohol and drink lots of alcohol, it kind of made me think about life, you know, in the West and in London. And that's obviously they're being disconnected from their community and ayahuasca brought them back to being connected in the community. But from that disconnection, we see that, you know, even in London, we live in such a disconnected society that people are striving to feel that connection subconsciously, I believe, without even realising. So, you know, we turn to consumerism, to alcohol, to drugs, anything to get us to a state where we can actually feel connected to everyone again. Yeah, absolutely. I think if I have something to learn from, you know, all these experiences with indigenous people all over the world is, you know, in one word is community. And, and what we did here, you know, after the 
you know, the enlight enlightenment period uh, when we threw away all the mysticism and you know what we call superstition, and we threw away all these different uh, animist cosmologies and different ways of being, and just embodied this um, rational way of seeing the world. We 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 came back. We really empowered the individual, and that reminds me of a quote by um, this amazing anthropologist Wade Davis, which says that uh, we really free the individual from the constraints of tradition, but we also casted the individual adrift. And I think that brilliantly sums up uh, what is happening with modern society. So these youth, when this road was built in the Amazon, you know, slowly people are curious, they, they found their way into, into the nearby town. And with that, they, 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 they found alcohol and then they found also pop music and all of that. So when they brought that to the community, they, they, they you know, as the leader told me, the youth would, st would stop wanting to participate in the rituals. They, they would just want to listen uh, to the musics of the, the latest uh, famous singer and they didn't feel the need to sing and to dance anymore because here was, you know, the, the famous singer who knows everything. So they developed contempt for their own identity. So as they told me, um, you know, and I quote, like that the medicine, quote unquote, you know, alcohol, they, they didn't see alcohol as necessarily as a poison. They, they just said it's the medicine of the white person, which we don't know how to control. And once again, you know, as they've done in the past, it was through the power of ritual, uh, the power of the collective effervescence induced through the chants of the shaman and the brew of ayahuasca, that they were able to rescue themselves back into the community and therefore continue to cope with the threats of the outside world as they did in the past. What about other indigenous groups in Brazil? As a collective, I imagine they're all experiencing the same devastation and danger. How have rituals helped them, uh, all of them as a collective, help to fight to protect their rights? So I think, I think the best way to explain this is, you know, in the same way that me as an outsider or an indigenous person with his or her subjectivities enters the, cer the ceremony as an individual. and through ritual emerges as one with the community, uh, the 300 different indigenous groups that gather in protest uh, on the asphalt through the ritualistic nature of their interaction also in a way emerge as one single force fighting for their own survival. And it just reminds me of a quote by uh, this renowned uh, indigenous woman in Brazil at the forefront of the resistance movement, Celia Chakriaba, who in an interview told me that, and I quote, that ritual is not only invoked in the moment that we step on the floor to dance and play the maraca, ritual is, is resistance. So, yeah. So before I let you go, what are you up to at the moment? <sighs> yeah, so now I'm currently in India. Uh, I've been here for a year now, and uh, I'm supporting the indigenous communities here in the forests in their fight against the same colonial forces. 
uh, it's, I don't know how long more I'm going to stay here, but maybe for another year or two, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, this is what I, I'm up to now. I'm, I'm very excited to be here. I'm very excited to, to being able to continue to do the work that, um, that, that, I, that, I, that I want to do and that is meaningful to me and meaningful for the people. Thank goodness for people like you is what I say. Um, I know obviously there's whatever happens still so much to do and there must be amazing support with charities like Survival International, which I know you've done work with and I hopefully I'm going to be doing too. Would you say that things are getting better or getting worse for Indigenous people? So I think, you know, the very fact that I'm here today as a white man talking to you about Indigenous people, it really means that, you know, there's, a still, there's still a lot to be done. And because ideally they would be here speaking for themselves. But, but yes, you know, I have an, an optimistic view about the future uh, because a lot of progress has been done thanks to organizations like Survival International, Survival International and others because the rights of indigenous people have been conquered. Uh, and I say conquered because they, they, you, the rights were not given to them. They had to fight for it. And so they, they, they've earned their hard earned rights in many countries. And although, you know, they are still yet to be meaningfully enforced, but, you know, the fact that people like you living in London uh, are curious to learn more about these neglected topics and the fact that we are here today having this conversation shows that we are heading the right way. And I believe that only such an awareness about who Indigenous people are and what they are going through uh, will things begin to change. And, you know, to quote, to quote an elder uh, of the Shavanta people, which one day said that nobody respects what they don't know, you know. So we, quote unquote, Indigenous people, need to show our strength and the beauty of our culture and that only then will people will care and admire for what we are so so i really think it's to do with education to to change the perspective we have about these peoples and and to just be humble enough to welcome them into the decision making table and allow them to speak for themselves and demand their own uh demand their own the things that um that are important for them. So, so what can we do to help uh, from people living in, you know, London, for mm -hmm. example? Well, I think first things first. I think, you know, that that's I could just expand on this question for for forever. But I feel like, as an individual level, I think you should try to find like-minded groups, find communities. Uh, Consult your own routine, your own rituals, you know, look how much, uh, try to, you know, find meaning, try to find meaning in whatever you do and as much as you can in a city like London. But, um, but then otherwise, you know, besides that, which change only uh, ha happens at least meaningfully when we as individuals take care of ourselves and create these like-minded community groups, but also to support people uh, like, like me are doing this work and organizations like Survival International, 
whom I had the pleasure to work and collaborate with. Um, because again, you know, these issues are very complex and anyone wanted to do anything themselves, at least for indigenous people, without the right knowledge and sensitivity uh, will certainly risk doing more harm than good. So what is important is to read more, learn more, educate others about the importance of indigenous people to, to the well-being of our planet, uh, as you and I are trying to do, basically. Vitor, thank you so, so, so much. It's been so interesting and insightful and it really shows the power of community and the collective. So I'm very grateful for you talking to me today. And thank you so much and keep going with your amazing work. And I look forward to connecting with you in the future and hearing more about it. Thank you so much, Elizabeth. Thanks for your invitation. It was a pleasure talking to you. And uh, if people want to continue following my journey, they can check my Instagram at ethnopoet, which is E-T-H-N-O poet. And uh, just drop me a message if you have any questions. I, I love to, to interact with people. And that was, always, that was also how we, we get to know each other. So Yes, yes, it was. It was so great. Thank you so, so much. Thank you. Thank you, Elizabeth.